0: Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, Reiki practitioner, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and is not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, submit it on the podcast page at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join our Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe. Is it just me or does my intro music just get you so amped up on life? I love that soundtrack, honestly. I had a great weekend. I hosted a little event with my friend Kaylee Clark in San Diego. We were at the hydration room in La Jolla, and it was really, really fun to get to meet other people in the community, and beaming catered. I always love beaming, and I am really hoping to do events like this regularly in the San Diego area just to get you know sense of community, meet people, like-minded individuals, that's what it's all about i like to move things from the internet into real life so be on the lookout for more san diego events if you're in the area i have some fun things coming your way also don't forget if you are a san diego local i'm doing a huge promo for reiki services so if you're curious about what a Reiki session is like with me, then you can go to my website to book at christinaricewellness.com slash services. I have my information up there. You can learn more about what's included in a session and then apply to book for me. Again, huge promo for anyone who books in these first two months that I am practicing here. I am super excited for more of you guys to try out Reiki it's so transformative. You know I'm obsessed with it. It has changed my life and I want more of you to experience it. And if you are not local to San Diego, you can also do a distance session with me. It can be done from anywhere in the world. You can find more information about that also on my services page on my website at christinaricewellness.com slash services. Actually, in my last episode, Meg Doll shared more about her experience with Reiki, with me. She's done both in-person sessions and distance sessions as has my friend jesse coleman who was on the podcast before and liz anthony i think they've all spoken about their experiences so you can compare but distance reiki is just as effective as in person so everyone can experience it anyways i am hoping the weather starts to turn around here in san diego it was it was nice and sunny and then it went back to raining and I'm just ready for it to be a little bit sunnier so I can go outside more. When we had like four sunny days here last week, everybody went out and it was so much fun and everyone got sunburned. I talked about when I got sunburned before, but my friend told me that her lips were so sunburnt and I gave her Ned's hemp infused lip balm to help with it. I talk about Ned's Full Spectrum Hemp Oil all the time because I'm obsessed with it, but if you didn't know, I'm also obsessed with their lip balms. They have four different flavors, but I love the peppermint one for this purpose because if your lips are sunburned or chapped, you really want to pay attention to the ingredients that are in your chapstick for a few reasons. First of all, chapstick in general... If you are gluten intolerant, gluten sensitive, if you have celiac, you want to make sure there's no gluten in your lip products because you are ingesting what's on your lips, whether or not you realize it. Also, in general, you want to make sure we're using non-toxic ingredients in our personal care products so that we're avoiding any of those endocrine disruptors, any toxic chemicals like, well, I mean, these aren't lipsticks, but lipstick, you got to be really aware of the heavy metals in those I, unfortunately, was a victim to that. But I love the NED ingredients. It's all natural and really, really nourishing ingredients that can help with chapped lips and sunburns. So they have, let's see, their extra virgin olive oil, extra virgin coconut oil, raw shea butter, castor oil, vitamin E, essential oils, the peppermint, and then active cannabinoids. So it is full-spectrum hemp extract infused. You also need to be aware of chapsticks in general because what most of them do is is they have ingredients that make your lips feel moisturized and nourished at first and then it's designed to dry your lips out a few hours later so you have to apply again and again and then you run out and then you buy it more so watch out for those sneaky ingredients which is why I like to stick with an all-natural lip balm that will actually moisturize your lips keep them moisturized and not dry them out later on it's not a marketing scheme I, in general, am super picky about ingredients and quality, and that's why I love Ned's products, especially their full-spectrum hemp oil, because there are so many CBDs out on the market, and it can be confusing, and I look for quality, and Ned stands the test. In terms of CBD, CBD isolates are really common in the market, and an isolate is a lab-isolated CBD compound that's in that white powdered form, and it's stripped of all of the other phytocannabinoids that really help to complement the cannabinoids and without those other cannabinoids there's no entourage effect and that's what is thought to really be behind the true healing powers of hemp. Ned's full spectrum hemp oil on the other hand contains other active cannabinoids in addition to the cannabidiol never any isolate so it includes other compounds like CBG, CBC, CBDA, CBGA and more so that you get that full entourage effect. The only ingredients are the cannabidiol and the whole range of other phytocannabinoids as well as non-GMO MCT oil. A lot of other products on the market will be filled with inflammatory oils and flavorings to mask the taste of the hemp, but NEDS doesn't need to do that. This is also because they only extract from hemp flowers, otherwise known as buds, whereas other products on the market are often extracted from the stalks and the seeds of the hemp plant. You can truly taste the difference at how high quality this is and you can also feel the difference. I know so many people who have used CBD and they say it doesn't do anything and then they try Ned and tell me how much it's really, really helped them. And this also has a lot to do with... I mean the quality, but their farmer Kurt has been experimenting with hemp plants for over a decade and has really dialed in the exact strains for maximizing cannabinoid density and overall plant integrity. And it really shows by the effectiveness of the product. NED products do not get you high. Full spectrum hemp is a major non-psychotropic, but what it can help with is to stimulate your endocannabinoid system, which I talked about this on my NTA recap episode. Some people suggest that the root of much of our chronic disease and especially mental health issues is related to The fact that our endocannabinoid systems are not stimulated regularly. And so, CBD, full spectrum hemp oil, will help to stimulate the endocannabinoid system, which helps our body maintain homeostasis. So, some of the uses of full spectrum hemp oil include helping with insomnia, it acts as a sleep aid, it can also act as an anti inflammatory and a natural pain reliever. It can also aid in anxiety and depression, PTSD. It's a rich source of antioxidants and it's been shown to help in the treatment of a lot of serious chronic conditions like epilepsy, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. So if you want to try it out, just go to helloned.com and use my discount code wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S. That will get you 15% off. Again, helloned.com and my discount code wellness will get you 15% off. You can find their full-spectrum hemp oil on there, starting with a 300 milligram. I recommend starting there, and then you can graduate up to a higher dose. And you'll also find their body butter and their lip balms on there as well. These products have changed my life. I use them every single day, and if you try them out, let me know how it goes. Speaking of the NTA conference, while I was there, I ran into my friend, Margaret Floyd, who is today's guest on the show. And Margaret and I initially met a few years ago when she was my nutritional therapy practitioner. She worked with me through a number of bacterial overgrowth and my very stubborn case of chronic candida. That was before I became a health coach and then a nutritional therapy practitioner as well. But So I was Margaret's client, and then we stayed in touch after. She was a pleasure to work with. We're very similar um, in many ways, and I know I asked her a lot of tough questions (laughs) because that's the kind of person I am, and she stuck through it. She researched things. She found new new information, new data. Um, She is a practitioner that always thinks outside the box, which I love and working with her is really more of like a partnership than someone just telling you what to do and she knows how to adjust things and stay the course and knows how to work with difficult cases as well. But like I mentioned, she is a nutritional therapy practitioner and a restorative wellness solutions practitioner and also leads the restorative wellness solutions program, which is a comprehensive functional nutrition certification program for qualified health professionals, She'll talk a bit more about it on this episode, but she runs and teaches the course at Restorative Wellness Solutions with her partner, Anne. But you can also find all of her content on her website, eatnakednow.com. She has a book with the same name. It's called Eat Naked and then also a follow-up book, The Naked Foods Cookbook. As well as being an NTP, she is also a certified GATS practitioner, a certified healing foods specialist, and she's also studied at the Institute for the Psychology of Eating. I've been wanting to have Margaret on the show for a while for many reasons. She is just, (laughs) I don't even know how she keeps all the things she knows in her brain. She knows everything, but I really wanted to have her on to talk about food sensitivity testing, food sensitivities versus food intolerances versus food allergies and explain all of that because I get so many questions about all of this and I've, t- I've talked about it before, posted about it on my blog and she really specializes in this at Restorative Wellness Solutions to teach practitioners, you know, how to do different healing protocols and how to utilize the results from different types of tests to get their clients the best possible health outcomes. so she really understands the testing side of things and the mechanisms behind these different types of food sensitivity, food intolerance, food allergy tests and I really wanted her to come on and speak more to that but we talk about a whole range of topics on here. We talk about autoimmune conditions, gluten, veganism. Eating raw meat <laughs> so we go all over the place i think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation especially if you are a nutrition nerd as i am and it was so much fun having margaret on the show you know we went from her being my practitioner to us just staying in touch being friends and then now i'm having her back on my show and things always come full circle i remember our first conversation on the phone together And we were just doing kind of an intro call and I was telling her, oh, yeah, I think I want to join the NTA when I graduate because I was in college at the time. And she goes, oh, you would love it. This program is exactly for someone just like you. And I was like, "Okay, yes, these are my people. Um, So, yeah, it's funny how things come full circle. I am so excited for you guys to hear this conversation. So let's just hop right into it. Here is Margaret Floyd. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Margaret. It is a pleasure to chat with you in this different context than we used to chat. Um, Why don't you start off by just introducing yourself to the audience so they know a little bit about you and what you do? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So I am Margaret Floyd-Berry. I'm a functional nutritionist and I practice here out of Portland, specializing primarily in working with people with autoimmune issues, but also lots of serious digestive distress, hormonal issues. Um, you know, all these things go hand in hand. But, uh, yeah, that's the that's the key piece of it.
0: Yeah. How did you start getting into that?
1: So I started way back in the day when um, – well, there's been so many different stages. Let me tell you the most recent iteration because, of course, you know, I've loved – I've been obsessed with food my whole life, but that hasn't always been a really healthy relationship with food. And let me tell you, it's looked a lot different. But, you know – um When I was four months pregnant with my second daughter, so this is going to be about three years ago now, um, my husband James and I had just moved to Portland from L.A. with our three-year-old Sia. And, you know, we were just loving living in this beautiful city where we can walk and bike everywhere. And we'd bought our dream home. My practice was rocking. Um, James had just sold his business. So just life was awesome. And one day I've got a couple minutes before my next client. And so I decided to check email quickly as we do. And I saw that some of my lab results were in and, you know, I just run some routine blood work just to make sure everything was fine. And. I pop open and scrolling through and I see elevated thyroid antibodies and I'm like holy shit like <laughs> what I have an autoimmune process going on just like my mom so I immediately start spinning out because thinking oh my god does this mean like when I take my girls on a mother-daughter trip are they going to spend the whole time stuck in a hotel room watching me be sick like I did with my mom when she took me to dominican republic when i was nine you know does this mean that they're gonna you know wake up hearing me screaming out for james the way i did with my mom when i was little hearing her screaming for my dad and just like hell no like there is no way i'm gonna let my girls watch me die of autoimmune disease the way i watch my mom so um i mean that is right there why i do what i do um You know, I and in that moment, it was kind of a thing for me because I'd already been practicing for many years. Mm -hmm. And here I am. I specialize in helping people reverse autoimmune disease. So talk about imposter syndrome, just like, God, now I have one. Like, what does that say about me? So I just, you know, I know what to do, at least. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I did what I do with my clients. You know, I tightened up my diet. I rejigged my supplement protocol. I dove in and just did the healing work like I do with everybody. And it freaking worked. Um, About a week before the baby's due, I'm like, oh, my God. You know, I made it. No major symptoms. I didn't need to lean on medication. And with this type of autoimmune disease, with thyroid issues in particular, it can definitely um, severely um, impact a pregnancy. And the pregnancy was fine. So... um, now, the thing with autoimmune disease is that we know there's a few things that can cause all out flares, and unfortunately, one of those is having a baby. Clearly, there was nothing I could do about that um, but the one of the other major things is major life stress, and I was so freaking proud of myself that I had dodged that bullet and so right at that time, you know we're just a few days out from the baby being born, and my husband, who was in l a on business, calls me up, and he's like, "Hey, babe." I got some news. That business deal went south and there's no more money coming in. And so just like that, <laughs> bye bye maternity leave and hello major life stress. And so I just went back to the books and um, you know figured out how to make it happen except this time I built my business plan around my health no more could I do what I'd always done which was build my health around my business um, oh the irony <laughs> um, and because I did that you know a year later another major life stress my dad died really suddenly and I made it through no major flares. I've never needed to lean on medication. And, you know, I wish I could sit here in front of you and say, like, this thing is gone. I've slayed this dragon. It's gone for good. But the thing with autoimmunity is it's just not the way it works. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to have to keep my eye on this for the rest of my life. And so the thing is, is I know I can and I know I can do it naturally. And I have never in my life been more committed to helping other people who have been diagnosed with autoimmune disease do the same.
0: Well that is a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. I think your passion always like shines through. And I think when like when I was working with you, yeah, I mean, I've worked with a lot of different nutritionists, um practitioners in general, and you were definitely the one who stood out as like you are so invested in your mm-hmm. clients and just you think outside of the box in so many different ways that no one else does and you look into new research and um I think that probably comes from, like, your own personal experiences because you treat everyone as if it's your your own life, you know. Um, I'm, I'm curious, though, because – so before you found out that your antibodies were high, you were already living, like, a healthy lifestyle. Like, you already were eating well, right? So what do you think mm-hmm. kind of changed? Do you think that was just time or was there a life event that you think triggered that or – Well, so,
1: you know, it's, I don't, it's so hard to tell. There's so many different things. So few, one, I mean, I have so much autoimmunity in my family. It's always, you know, my mom died of autoimmune disease and um, it feels like, you know, half my family has got some form, many of them multiple forms of it. So we know there's a huge genetic component to it. I hadn't tested for this type of antibody previously. Mm. So Who knows? It might have been there beforehand and I didn't know it. In fact, with pregnancy, autoimmunity often goes into remission. So it, you know, that was part of the fear is like, oh my God, this thing might get worse before it gets better. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, um, I think also, so I was pregnant and so I do live a cleaner lifestyle, I'd say, than most. And I was pregnant and having all sorts of cravings. I will confess I was having a bit of a gluten party when mm. um, when I got that news. So that was like, you know, and I never ate, you know, since I've become a nutritionist, I know what gluten does. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely minimized it and I would have, you know, maybe the odd thing like once a month or something like that. Or if we were in Italy, like I'd make exceptions, but I wasn't like hard line. And I honestly, I didn't, you know, at that point I didn't need to be because I didn't know there was an autoimmune process going on. Mm -hmm. But then I get pregnant, I'm craving things more. And this is one of the things that when you are moderate with things, it's like the hardest thing. I think, yes, I can have it. No, I can't. Is way freaking easier than like oh, I can have a little bit of it now and again, because then when's now and again, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was just doing that thing where it was like now and again was turning from like once a month to like mm, once a week to maybe a couple times a week. I wouldn't say it was like a daily thing, but for me, it was way more than normal. So I just... You know I really tightened the ship and um, you know I have also historically lived a really high-stress life I love my work exactly as you say like I am so committed to it I have seen so much of what doesn't work and I am really invested probably to a little bit to my detriment like I actually have to work a little bit on boundaries because I'll stay up all night worrying about a client and mm-hmm. you know where they're at and what we you know to, how what can we do to really take them to the next level you know Um, so I think it's kind of a combination of all of those things that, you know, I wasn't and I really, you know, when I say that I now built my business plan around my health, I mean, that was a huge difference for me. You know, even though the irony that here I am in the health field, most of the time I've just, you know, I'd put my clients needs before mine. Mm -hmm. I
0: I feel like I see that a lot. I feel like a lot of people, (laughs) they come from their own personal health struggle or someone in their family and then that's what gets them into this field. But then they're so invested in their clients. and They drive themselves into the ground. They're overworking because they're so okay. invested and passionate. And then it's at the detriment of their own health. I mean, I know I've done that before too, okay. you know. You know. Um, <laughs> but I actually want to touch on gluten for a second since you yeah. brought it up. I would love for yeah. you to explain to people. I mean, obviously, I've talked about it before on this podcast. Mm-hmm. But if there's anyone who's new, slash, I would love – to hear it from, mm-hmm. from your mouth. Um, what does gluten do to the body?
1: Whew, what does it not do to the body? Okay, like a like super short and cut and yeah. dirty, like cut and dry version is it It triggers inflammation. Okay. Like there's so many different mechanisms for that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's so many different parts of gluten and things that come in gluten containing grains. And there's this conversation oh, oh, is it the gluten? Oh, is it the glyphosate? Oh, is it the lectins? Oh, is it this? Oh, is it that? You know what? They're all inflammatory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. You know, and yeah, we can run different tests to see how your body specifically is, you know, what aspect of that your body is specifically inflammatory to. But what I have really come to is that gluten is just like, it's just inflammatory for mm-hmm. everybody it contributes to leaky gut for everybody. You can have the most perfect rock solid digestion. You eat gluten and it's going to contribute to the process that creates leaky gut for the next 17 hours. Mhm. Doesn't matter how healthy you are now. And that might have been okay way back in the day when we didn't have like all of these other assaults, you know, eating kind of Franken foods and breathing in horribly polluted air and drinking polluted water and environmental toxins and, you know, sort of depressing list of all the stuff that assaults our body that didn't assault that wasn't even there 100 years ago, let alone 1000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And so yeah, our systems are already weakened. So it can be quite a tipping point. And another big thing with gluten is that we have to realize that the gluten or like, I'll say wheat, that the wheat we are eating today is just not even remotely the same as the wheat we were eating even 40, 50 years ago, even 30 years ago. And that's because of just massive processes of hybridization. And then you add genetic modification to that. Then you add the different, you know, like the, the, what's used, the chemicals that are used to preserve it, how they store it, the molds are grown. I mean, it's just like, you know, and people will say, well, can I have the ancient grains if they're, you know, sprouted and fermented, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, you know what, if here's my, here's my thing. If you have autoimmune disease in your family, Or if you have an autoimmune diagnosis or you have been tested for antibodies and have, you know, you sort of predictively know that there is an autoimmune process going on in your body that could develop into a full fledged autoimmune disease, just say goodbye to gluten. Mm -hmm. There's never been an easier time on the planet to do it. I mean, like, you know, I mean, you know, if you're looking for something to substitute for that hankering you've got, like, honestly, I think that probably the only thing at this point that I haven't ever seen done almost, you know, in a way that you almost can't tell there's no gluten is maybe a croissant, you know, Mm. so someone out there has like the perfect, you know, gluten free croissant, you know, please let me know.
0: (laughs) I'm not sure. What about what do you think for people who they don't have autoimmune disease in their family, they don't have autoimmune disease, they feel generally healthy, um, like they feel pretty good. Do you still think that person should avoid gluten?
1: I'd say take it out of your diet for 30 days, see how you feel, and then put it back and see how you feel. I've not. I will tell you. So, I have worked definitely with hundreds, probably thousands of clients at this point. I have had one, one client who felt worse off of gluten and felt better eating it. And I will say this is a person who has a pituitary tumor and her entire body is flipped. Whereas, like, everything that you would expect, the opposite happens in her body. So And she's literally the only client I have ever had. honestly, the only person who has, you know, taken me to my word saying, like, take it out for a solid at least two weeks, better of 30 days, put it back in, see how you feel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even if it can be subtle, subtle things, it can be like, oh, I'm not thinking as clearly as I used to, or I'm grumpier. Uh, but most people, it's way louder than that. Most people, they're like, oh, i I'm losing some weight and I didn't realize that I didn't have to, you know, be bloated and in pain after meals. A lot of people don't actually even realize how sick they are because their standard is so low. I was definitely that. I mean, you should have seen the shape I was in when I first went to (laughs) Nutritional Therapy Association for school. Oh, my gosh. Really? Really? Oh, I was a vegan (laughs) and I was, yeah, I was a vegan and I can't imagine you being a uh, vegan. (laughs) I don't know, right? I was a vegan and I'd been a vegetarian, between vegetarian and vegan on and off for better part of 12 years, Mm -hmm. kind of depending on how you calculate 12 to 15 years. I'd never cooked meat. And I thought of myself as really healthy because I was skinny. Mm. And Yes, I needed to have a bottle of extra strength Advil with me at all times because you never knew when a migraine was hit. And yes, I would have to lie down after many meals in a week. Not it was not an infrequent thing where I'd have to lie down afterwards because I was in so much pain that I literally couldn't walk. I mean, I can remember one time on a date in university. I orchestrated the thing. I was in so much gut pain that I literally we passed this park and there's benches and I was like, "Hey, let's let's go lie down on the on the bench and look at the stars." You know, a like romantic God. thing, and I was literally lying there silently passing gas so that I could get up and walk <laughs> back. I mean, that's how bad it was. But I was healthy, you know. So, so yeah. And I can remember when we filled out the the symptom burden assessment on the first day of class. This is back in the day when class was in person. And I was horrified at my results. I mean, they were off the chart. And the instructor at the time looked at it. She goes, ah, vegetarian, right? And I was like, how'd you know? (laughs) She's like, oh, you'll see this all the time.
0: (laughs) That's so funny. Wait, so do you think that all that stomach pain and like gas, do you think that was from the fiber or the grains and legumes or all of it or...
1: Oh my gosh. It was from so many things. I mean, so big one was soy. Mm. A big one was like, I just don't, I can't go near soy. And so I was eating a ton of it, but I would blame it on like, oh, I can't eat Thai food because what would I eat when I would go to my Thai restaurant It would be like green curry with, uh, with tofu. Yes. <laughs> I can remember the first time I had a green curry with beef and I was like, oh, and I was like waiting for the stomach pain, you know, and it never came. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, I think a combination, I mean, I was just, my digestion was just a mess, you know, so I really needed to clean it up. And I'm at the point now, I still really don't, you know, I can handle a little soy sauce on something, but I can't, you know, I'm not going to sit down and eat tofu or if I do, like, I know I'm ruining my day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but I've had to do a ton of gut healing work. And so things like migraines, thing of the past, gut pain, you know, essentially a thing of the past, unless I make a conscious decision to override what I know. Um, but all of these things, I mean, even like just like back pain, I mean, like mysterious things that I would never have connected to my diet.
0: Um, all of, I would actually love for you to talk more about, um, what prompted you to switch from vegan vegetarianism to eating Mm -hmm. animal protein and kind of what that was like, because that's, I've never been vegan or vegetarian. I know there are plenty of people who listen to this who, you know, I hear it a lot. They're like, I'm thinking about it but I'm just nervous and so yeah. I'd love to kind of hear more about your experience and what convinced you.
1: Well, so I am one of those people that I, you know, having, you now my mom was still alive at the time when I first started studying um nutrition, but you know, I had definitely watched her degrade and I knew what didn't work. And I'm one of those people if I hear something works, if I learn something, like I can't unlearn that and I don't override it emotionally. Um and so I I, when that, when that, that day that, that instructor looked at my symptom burden analysis and said, oh, vegetarian, right? And I was like, oh my God. Um, I literally left class and I went to, it was called wild oats at the time, right? It was, it's now been rolled into whole foods. So I went to wild oats and I remember I stood there at like the butcher counter. I had no. know I mean, I was just like, and I literally stood there and cried, not even from like an animal rights perspective, just because sheer overwhelm, like I had no idea what to do with any of this. And it's funny because I was cooking for the guy who was my boyfriend at the time. Plus, you know, I think my cousin, like another, anyways, three big guys I was making dinner for. and I bought this like tiny little piece of steak because to me this is basically half a cow right Yeah. (laughs) and and I went home and I cooked it and I sliced it up into these little portions everyone got like their little bite um but yeah no I mean I did it immediately and you know I mean I did need to support some things like you know I learned about the need for hydrochloric acid and so I hit you know was working with some supplementation to make sure that I could actually digest it it was I mean it was instantly game-changing for me um not just from the gut pain perspective, but because I always had an insatiable appetite, which I just thought, oh, I have a fast metabolism. Oh, I just, you know, I was a runner. So I just, I, I had all these reasons to, to explain why I could eat basically three times what anyone else could. And I mean, it would be almost embarrassing. Like I would order second dinners at a restaurant, mm-hmm. but I was also, I mean, what was I eating? I was eating pasta, you know, <laughs> and I'd be so hungry. I'd eat this huge thing of pasta and then would be like, I need more and I need a second bowl of pasta. And then I'd be like, well, I'm only going to not order a third because this is looking silly, you know, Um, and my stomach would be out here, but I'd still be hungry because, you know, I wasn't getting the right nutrients. And so I remember that first night when I ate just those couple little bites of protein, of animal protein, I was satiated. And I was like, Oh and I mean the volume of food that I ate dropped massively. So I did I implemented it pretty much immediately. Um I work with a lot of people who probably because of my experience of going from vegetarian, vegan, and honestly, with autoimmunity I get people a lot who are like, well, I'm, I'm vegan, and I'm just really struggling. And I have to be very honest with them. It's one of the first conversations we have is like, I just, I wish I could tell you that there is a way to be a vegan, um, and even a vegetarian and, you know, and really heal the body from this autoimmune disease. Maybe there is I've never seen it work. Mm -hmm. And so to work with me, You know, I'll absolutely support them through that. And I know that there's an emotional component, you know, and I think something that's so important to remember, too, is that we think of it as like carnivore versus vegetarian. And when we think of, you know, when someone who's a vegetarian or vegan thinks about eating meat, they're not thinking about. A beautiful, sustainable family farm where these animals are living incredible lives, eating the way that they're designed to eat. Basically, just, you know, as Joel Salatin, you know, our, our favorite farmer will say like, you know, these are animals have had a great life with one bad day, you know, mm-hmm. and like, it's a very different thing from a feedlot. And, you know, I would never recommend anyone eat meat off of, you know, sort of industrial production, because for every reason, and, you know, including and, you know, I mean, yes, the obvious sort of environmental animal welfare reasons, but also from a nutritional perspective they're just Mm -hmm. not even the same food. So from a health perspective, you know, it's just, you know, there's that piece, too. So that's I spend a lot of time coaching people through that. It's not an easy it's not an easy conversation. I have, um, you know, you know, sort of held space for a lot of people going through a lot of tears and a lot of, you know, and it's a horrible place to be where you think, oh, my gosh, I have to make this sort of if you've, if you've made a decision to become a vegan for sort of moral and ethical reasons and feel like you have to choose between the well-being of another and the well-being of yourself, it's a brutal position to be in. And so, yeah, it's a it's a hard conversation.
0: That is a very hard conversation. Are there any resources that you generally, like, recommend to people, like books or movies yeah, or anything?
1: Yeah, uh, 100%. So, I mean, so one book that is great um, that really explains this is from Lear Keith, um, The uh, Vegetarian Myth. Yeah. I do recommend that and I like it because she just comes from such a really positive and beautiful place from, that, you know, she was just trying to do no harm on the planet and she'd been a vegan for, ooh, it's been a little while since I read that book, but at least 20, I think maybe even 30 years and she, you know, she had decided not to have kids because she didn't want to add the pop, to the population stress, she didn't own a car, like, so this is someone who was walking her talk and it was in the process of trying to grow her own food and and a health struggle that she went through that she realized that she couldn't actually sustain herself without the involvement of animals. And then there's all sorts of health reasons. So she writes a really thoughtful book. Also, Daniel Vitalis, um, his podcast is Rewilding Yourself. And he did a two-part series um, on the, you know, and he's also someone who is vegan, who now, you know, hunts for his food, so he's gone quite to the other end of the spectrum. But he um but he has a really thoughtful and considerate explanation of you know all of sort of the the arguments. He tries to take it out of the emotional realm and bring it more into like let's look at the science. Let's look at ourselves, anthropology from an anthropological perspective, mm-hmm. which I think is really important. You know, you hear things, and I've seen it because I there's a post on my blog called you know oh, I can't remember something about being a recovering vegetarian, and I mean I've had people call me an animal hating bitch. I've had I mean I've had it all and. And so it's a really, you know, it's something that people get very, very emotional and passionate about. And so he tries to take it out of that and look at, um, well, there also you'll have the argument of like, oh, we've evolved away from the need to eat meat. And, you know, like it just just sort of shows a, a lack of understanding around like what evolution actually is and how slow, how slow that process is. And we're pretty far away from um, evolving away from it. And kind of the irony in this too is that the reason why we are even able to have this conversation is because we evolved to eat animal foods, proteins, and fats, right? Like we couldn't even have this conversation because mm-hmm. um, we would still be not, I mean, that's part of what makes us human. Yeah. So it is, it is, a. it's, you know, it's, it's a big one and a, and a, and a hard one for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, I think everyone should definitely check those out. I haven't, I want to listen to that podcast. I didn't even know about that. So it sounds amazing, but you also, so I mean, speaking of going to the other end of the spectrum, you were the one who got me into eating raw meat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're saying this live. (laughs) Yeah. What, 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 like, how did you first start that? So as a kid, it's kind of, I've, I've
1: always gravitated to Rami. I've always loved sushi since I was little. And I remember, I mean, it's kind of amazing I didn't die when I was little because my mom would make hamburgers. And so she'd have the hamburger meat out and she'd come back and she'd find these little like hand, hand marks because I would reach up and grab the raw hamburger and eat it. And when it was raw, I loved it. And as soon as she cooked it, I hated it. Oh, my God. I've always been like that. So then when I learned that eating, you know, I, I, you know, being in the food community and you sort of mm. hear some of these things, it was actually a yoga teacher in L.A., um, Brad. Brad, his last name begins with a K. I can't remember. But I remember someone said, oh, he's, he eats raw. And I remember the first time I went to one of his yoga classes, I was like, there's no way this guy is a raw vegan. I mean, he just like sort of emanates this like – just like sort of this fierce, str- I mean, I was just like, if he does, then he's doing something differently from any other raw vegan I know. Yeah. And I, I actually went up to him afterwards and said, like, I have to say, I'm so impressed. And then he's like, oh, I'm not eating raw vegan. <laughs> he's like, I eat raw eggs and raw steak and raw this. And I was like, oh, it makes so much more sense. So he actually. um he kind of introduced me a bit more to the concept of it and in many ways gave me permission to do what i I mean, anytime you take me to a fancy fresh restaurant, I'm, I'm ordering the steak tartare, mm-hmm. you know, anything, the raw I can get it, the better. I just love it. So it was really that I was just kind of honoring my body's natural instincts. I actually did 30 days in the raw um, after my first daughter was born. Gosh, she was about a year, year and a half. Um, and honestly, I've almost never felt better. I, and it kind of sucks. So, my husband's a chef, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, we were like, oh man, like we love cooking. You know, we're in the kitchen a lot. Like, this is food's a big part of our life um, and eating you know, raw entirely. I mean, yes, there's lots of creative things you can do with it. But, you know, certainly from a going out to a restaurant perspective, it was pretty majorly limiting. Um, but yeah, I felt amazing on it. So it's but it's, it is you have to be so careful with how you source things and how you prepare it and how you store it and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, you don't just go like buy chicken from Safeway and come home and eat it. I would never actually I never ventured into raw chicken. I know people do. I, I was actually I'm not a big chicken person anyways, but, but yeah, you gotta be, you gotta be careful with how you do it. So please, for those people out there, be very cautious. Don't just like run to the store and buy any old piece of raw meat and eat mm-hmm. it. Like, you know, be smart about this and, and research it and learn how to prepare it properly.
0: But so I don't think so. I ever told you this, but I actually did now I, when I eat raw, it's like meat. Like I really like raw lamb and like beef and, but, um, I've had raw chicken before. Yeah. Um, and When I was first talking about it on my blog, I don't know what happened, but basically the Daily Mail wrote this big article about me, and like this hate article about some crazy girl who eats raw chicken, (laughs) and if anyone wants to Google, just Google like Daily Mail Christina Rice, and there's this huge article about how how I'm some psycho, like crazy (laughs) nutritionist girl who eats raw meat, and like everyone needs to watch out for me. (laughs) That's funny. Um, Yeah, it was hilarious, but... For people who are listening to this and they just think you sound crazy, can you yeah. can you explain like what are the benefits of eating raw raw anal products? Isn't that really unsafe, unhealthy? People are really afraid yeah. of that. Uh-
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, as I said, you really do have to be careful about sourcing here. Like when we I was talking about the difference between like industrial meat versus, you know, really properly sourced pasture raised, uh, you know, meat from the pasture raised animals, totally different food. So you really have to be careful here with this. Um, But, you know, when you when you cook proteins, you denature them pretty significantly and they become a lot more difficult to digest and they become, you know, they just create more free radicals in the body and they, they can actually do a lot more damage. Um, now, you know, you do, it's, it's interesting. So think about sushi, for example, when you eat sushi, um, what comes with it? You get the wasabi, you get, um, there's that little green leaf that I can't remember the name of it. Um, but you know, everything that is there, you know, when, when you eat, a, you know, is sort of the traditionally, you know, every culture has raw animal foods traditionally. And when they serve those foods, they serve them very specifically with other pieces that are sort of digestive aids and things that can ha- help kill foodborne pathogens and things like that. So like the wasabi, for example, part of why you eat that with your sushi is because it kills um, the the any kind of foodborne pathogens or it helps to do that. And, you know, you you want to be just like you wouldn't just bring sort of any old salmon home, keep it in your fridge for a week and then eat it raw. Like, you know, but no, it's really interesting because people do freak out over eating raw meat. And yet many of these same people don't even think twice about eating sushi. So, so much of this is cultural, right? Mm-hmm. But you do want to be smart about it. Like, you know, people get sick sometimes off of eating bad sushi. I have, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was no fun, you know? So you have to be careful with how you source it. Um, there's different schools of thought. Some people believe that freezing um, helps to kill off more pathogens. And I kind of fall into that camp. It just feels safer, probably just because it's colder. Um, there's others who say you should never freeze, Um you should never freeze it, but you should eat it sort of fresh um, and just kept cold. Um, but, um, you know, and there's things that you can do. So something like a ceviche, for example, which is how a lot of people eat chicken raw is they do it as a ceviche. So they use the acidity from lemons and limes to quote unquote cook. It's without heat, but it is, you know, it's so it's not going to adversely affect the proteins, but it is going to help protect you from any kind of foodborne pathogens. So, um, yeah,
0: I love but it. It's, thank you for explaining <laughs> that yes guys I'm not the only one Margaret got me Ew. into it <laughs> Margaret, I blame Margaret I love it I love it though you I love how you like try everything another thing you tried recently was the plant paradox um diet the low luck electi- what was how what did you yeah. feel on that how what was your experience I felt like?
1: Fine. You know, I have to say, I mean, I eat a fairly low lectin diet anyways, right? I mean, the biggest changes for me, so lectins will be found in grains, legumes, um in in sort of fruits and vegetables that contain seeds. So I'm thinking of things here like zucchinis, peppers, tomatoes. Um and yeah, you know i felt I felt good I already felt really good going into it, you know, mm-hmm. so that wasn't I wasn't sort of a great litmus test, and my thought about the whole lectin thing is that really i mean it's kind of like what we said with the gluten, you know with um you know with a lot of these foods, it's yes, there's different agents, I mean, you could make an argument, there's not a food out there that you could not make an argument about. You eat too much spinach. Oh, you got too many oxalates. You know, like I mean, there's there's every everything. There's no food that's safe. Everything is going to do something in too great a quantity. So I think rather than sort of target a specific food, with the exception of gluten, um, I my approach really is to really firmly heal up the gut so that you can tolerate. And and downregulate the immune system if you need to, if you're in an autoimmune place or if you're in somewhere where it's just just, your body's in that kind of inflammatory loop and it just can't get out of it. So in those cases, you kind of need to kind of intervene and help bring that immune, kind of calm that immune response a little bit. But once you have calmed that response and really healed up the gut, then lectins aren't a big issue, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I've looked at that plant paradox diet. I feel like I'd be really hungry on it, honestly. It, it, isn't it like very little protein? Isn't it mostly just well, like- Well, he
1: moves to that towards the end. Oh, yeah. He has okay. these different stages of it. Yeah. And at the, and he definitely kind of moves into not quite v- vegan, close-ish. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that piece of it. But the primary piece of it is pulling out the big hitters, like grains, yeah. legumes, nightshades, and then these, the one that freaks a lot of people out, especially people who eat mostly this way is zucchini.
0: Yeah. That's (laughs) that's why I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can't have my zoodles. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big one. Have you ever, have you ever, um, done carnivore? I haven't. And I
1: don't know enough about it to really comment on it. Mm -hmm. I have, I don't, I haven't tried it. No, I
0: was just curious since you like to be a self experimenter, but I mean, speaking of all the, Lectins and yeah. everything and how there's good and bad about every food let's move into our food sensitivity chat because Perfect. this is really what i wanted to you to speak to because you're the expert in this arena um so let's just start off maybe you can kind of explain what's a food sensitivity how is that different than a food allergy and what like what what are signs yeah, of
1: totally. that Totally. So I'm going to give sort of those three main categories, and I'm going to give you my definitions for them. And a couple of these words are used interchangeably. There's a lot of confusion out there about it. So you have a food allergy. Okay, a f- true food allergy is, you know, from a technical perspective it's an IgE, so that's a t- it's an immuno- immunoglobulin E, that's a type of antibody and that it's an it's an immune IgE antibody mediated response. So it's a very specific type of response in the body. Now the thing with a true food allergy is that most people um figure this out by trial and error, by experience, because it's very immediate. You eat the peanuts, you break out in hives, you eat the shellfish, you throw it up. Like it's not something that's like, Ooh, I have a headache. Was that, that food? Like it's, it's very immediate. And typically that result, that response, that adverse response happens Uh, it gets louder with every exposure. So maybe the first time you eat peanuts, you're just a little itchy. And then the second time you eat them, you get like full on hives. It's like, so it's, you know, it's not a subtle thing. Think about the bee sting, right? Someone who's allergic to bee stings, the first time I get it, it's a big deal. But the second time they get it, it could be life threatening. And it's just the body's response to it mounts with every exposure. So that's a food allergy, very uncommon that, you know, once you're sort of college age and beyond, it's pretty uncommon that you don't know what your food allergies are. And there's very, you know, the type of testing that allergists use, particularly if they're doing blood work looking for IgE antibodies, that is um, that's very accurate, reliable, easy it's kind of the easy one. Then you have these other types of reactions to foods. And I'm going to differentiate between food sensitivities and food intolerances, even though those terms are kind of used interchangeably. So a food intolerance is that your body doesn't have the digestive capacity to digest it. And... The very classic example of this is like a lactose intolerance. It's not that you have an allergy to milk or to the lactose in the milk, which is the the sugar in the milk, or that you're even sensitive to the lactose in the milk. It is when you have a lactose intolerance, that means that your body does not produce sufficiently um, the enzyme lactase, which is the enzyme that breaks down the lactose, and thus you have digestive distress as a result. There's different examples of that, but most people are familiar with lactose intolerance. So that is your body doesn't have the digestive capacity to handle it. Kind of like with the food allergies, it's a pretty immediate response. You know, you eat the food, you've got the, you know, people who are lactose intolerant know it because they eat dairy and then they're in the bathroom, right? Like it's just, it's not something where there's a lot of guessing and then they don't eat the dairy, they don't have that response. So that that's also one that's fairly simple to figure out just by trial and error. The one that's really challenging and the one that, you know, where there's a lot of testing, a lot of controversy and a lot of misunderstanding is this world of food sensitivities. So food sensitivities are an immune reaction to a food, but it's not an IgE reaction. So there's different ways that we can react. It can be other types of antibodies. So IgG, IgM, IgA; those are different antibodies that are typically used in testing. Um, and then there's some re- reactions that have nothing to do with antibodies, and they are mediated in the cell by T cells, which is just a type of immune cell. So they don't they don't involve antibodies, which is a specific type of um, a type of immune cell. So so you've got these reactions that they're different mechanisms from the IgE. It's not about digestive capacity like the food intolerance. It is immune mediated. Now, the thing that makes these guys tricky is that you could eat a food today and they can have a reaction. Today is Tuesday. We could have a reaction as late as Friday.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: How are you going to figure that out? Right. Like, there's just no way that I eat, you know, broccoli with my breakfast today and then I have a headache Thursday afternoon. I'm never going to connect those two things. Right. Like, I just won't. And um, and it's almost impossible to isolate through elimination diets or some of these non testing strategies, what foods are causing issues? So, this is where the wild world of food sensitivity testing comes in. And there's just you know, so IGE testing, super simple lack, you know, food intolerance. Now, there are food tests out there called the food intolerance test, like the fit test is the food intolerance test by K uh, KBMO labs. And they are, you know, that says intolerance, they are actually talking about food sensitivities, they're not talking about that digestive capacity. Um, but the place where you need the testing really badly is here in this land of food sensitivities. And the challenge is, is that so, I mean, there's so there is just straight up no such thing as a perfect test. We wish there was, but it just doesn't exist, at least not yet. Um, a lot of the tests focus on specific mechanisms, right? So I mentioned the antibodies, like the IgG, IgM, IgA. The most common type of food sensitivity testing tests IgG antibodies. So what they're looking for is, is IgG antibodies to foods in your blood. So there's a couple of problems with that. For one, as we just saw, there's lots of different ways to have those adverse food reactions, right? So it's missing, if it's just looking at IgG, it's missing IgM, it's missing IgA, and it's really missing all of those things that don't have anything to do with antibodies, all of those reactions. So you're gonna get some false negatives on that test. Another issue is that you, Elevated antibodies doesn't necessarily mean the end result of inflammation. And so this, this is kind of a next important concept is that we really care about these food sensitivities when they're causing symptoms. And symptoms are caused by inflammation. And so if you have a food that triggers an IgG response, for, for example, but does not trigger inflammation, it's not actually a big deal. It's a part of the body's normal sort of housekeeping mechanisms where, you know, your body is just shuttling out the garbage, like, oh, a little piece of undigested broccoli stock got in here, taking it out. But it's, that's not a big deal because you're, <laughs> it's not triggering inflammation. It is a big deal if it is triggering inflammation. And so some of those tests have added on um, additional they're looking for additional things, they're basically looking for evidence for additional immune activation, those tests are more accurate because they're now honing, it's not just about IgG, it's about IgG that has triggered a process that will likely cause inflammation. So it's more information, those are definitely more accurate. Still missing the other tests though, right? Like you're still missing the other mechanisms. So the other issue is that if you have in order to have antibodies to a food, you need to have eaten the food fairly recently. And, you need to have an immune system that's strong enough to mount a response. Two things that are not always the case, and I am certainly not gonna say to a client, ooh, you know you have reactions to all these foods, I want you to go out and eat them Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that we can test them and see if you really have a reaction or see if it's this mechanism, right? And a lot of people, especially my clientele, when they come to me, their immune systems are pretty flattened, you know, and they don't even really have the capacity to mount a response. So there's all sorts of inaccuracies there and lots of room for error. Um, so the type of testing that I far prefer is what we call mediator release testing, which is looking for that end result. It's looking for, is this food triggering a process, regardless of what that process is, that is causing inflammation, um, and that's the thing we really care about, and it does it in a way that doesn't require you to have eaten the food or to have the immune capacity to mount a response. So, it's um, it's just it's looking at that end result, which ultimately is so much more helpful as a clinician. Now, a super important piece in this is that food sensitivity testing, no matter how perfect the test, on its own is really, I want to say, is useless. I won't say it's useless. It will help you feel better for a couple months Mm -hmm. until you develop a whole new set of sensitivities because you haven't healed and addressed the environment that allow those food sensitivities to develop in the first place. So I am very much, you know, you see a lot, and I get a lot of this in my practice. Oh, I did this test. I did that test. I took out all the foods. I felt great for a little while. And now everything's back again, but I'm still avoiding those foods. Maybe they've even done a second test. And now they're like, and now I've got this whole new list of foods that I'm sensitive to, because they've developed all these new food sensitivities. And their list of sort of allowable foods is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And that's just, I mean, that's not called living, right? Mm -hmm. And and it's completely unsustainable, because whereas that going? You know, <laughs> I like just keep kind of extending that out in the future. And eventually, they're going to get down to almost nothing they can eat, which I definitely see. I'll have people come to me who can tolerate like six foods or nine foods, you know. And so the key is, you never, ever, ever, ever want to do food sensitivity testing on its own. It's always got to go alongside proper gut healing, which, you know, I'm a big testing believer. So I like to do testing alongside that too, because I think to properly heal the gut, you need to know what's going on so that you can heal it appropriately, which most of the time you can do naturally. It's just, you know, how I handle a situation with parasites is very different than how I handle a situation. If somebody, you know, has a fungal overgrowth, you know, which is different from if neither of those are there, but we have H. pylori or there's no pathogen and they just aren't secreting enough, Bile salts or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, you know, there's so many different pieces to it, you know. So, so that's a really, um, those are really important concepts to to wrap your mind around.
0: Okay, so let's let's start with more about the food sensitivity test. So, yeah. you prefer the MRT specifically,
1: right? I do. The Alcat is another version of this test. It's the precursor to the MRT. So a lot of people have heard of the Alcat. The MRT just uses newer technology and tests more foods. Mm-hmm.
0: Are there any other tests that That like is it just basically the Alka and MRT or are there any other that use the same mechanism for testing? To my
1: knowledge, no. That doesn't mean that. I mean, there might be, but I I haven't heard of them. Okay. Yeah. I wish there were. Honestly. Yeah. (laughs) Make my
0: so how does that compare to something like Cyrex? Like
1: Cyrex, so Cyrex is very specifically looking for antibodies. Okay. Um. So they're looking they're looking for antibodies. Um. And you know, kind of depending on the different panels, you know, and th- there's absolutely a role for that. Like I don't want to diss, uh, you know, for example, especially Cyrex, they're doing really really good work, and their stuff can be incredibly helpful clinically. Um. But in terms of sort of general general food sensitivity testing, they're still looking for antibodies. So they're just, they're, you know, you're missing pieces of the puzzle. And I've had multiple clients who've come to me who have done the Cyrex testing and have removed those foods and have had some improvement, but they haven't resolved. And when we do the full testing, um, it resolves. And I, oh, here's a super important thing too. Food sensitivity shift. So this isn't a forever, forever thing. This mm-hmm. is such an important detail. Um, this isn't, you can never eat something like when I'm saying never eat gluten again. I'm not, this is not the same camp as that. This is, these are foods that are right now causing inflammation in your body when you pull them out temporarily while you do the healing work to basically heal up the gut so that you don't have that mechanism anymore that's creating more food sensitivities then uh, you can reintroduce you know most of the time you can reintroduce if not all most of those foods you know so it's a short-term thing i'd say between three and six months is the typical time that you need to pull things out which is such a different thing from the way a lot of people are working with them. They're using these tests as, like, I can never eat that again. And it's just it's just not the case if you're doing it right.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I see a lot of people, like, they get – and that's why I'm worried that food sensitivity tests have become so popular mainstream because people will, find, quote, find out their food sensitivities and then think, I can never eat this for the rest of my life, and they're pulling out perfectly healthy foods. Um, you know, I have friends who years ago – got a food sensitivity test that said they can't have broccoli and they just won't eat broccoli and i'm like i mean (laughs) really um but okay so so we know this okay you talk about cyrex and then what about these at-home tests that people are getting like there's um the pinner test is really popular there's everly well like people are getting these kits delivered to their houses they're cheaper they just prick their fingers send them in and they get the results back
1: yeah, so I I wish there was a test like that that did the mediator release, um, but there's just no, to my knowledge, the technology is not there yet. And there's the 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 fact that they can order them at home and do it themselves is fine. It's the fact that you know you just have to look at what is that test looking for, mm-hmm. and both of those are just looking for IgG, so they're just looking for antibody elevations to certain foods, mm-hmm. and in order to have a so they're missing other types of responses. And they are um, and they're also if they haven't eaten the foods, they'll get a false negative. If they do have a reaction, um, if they don't have a a strong immune system, they'll get a false negative if they do, in fact, would have a reaction otherwise. So it's it's one of those things where um, it's, you know, I like to explain the mechanisms because if you you know listen to this and you really understand what you're looking for, you can evaluate because there's always new tests coming on the market all the time. And so then you can evaluate for yourself beyond the marketing language um, and just look at. What is it that they are testing? And if they're testing, you know, I'll tell you a test that is kind of like that. I don't know if you can order it yourself, but it is a it is a blood spot test mm-hmm. as opposed to a, t- a draw blood draw test. It's the FIT test that one I said, the food intolerance test, which I wish they would name it differently. But um, it is, um, but that one is looking for IgG, so it's still an IgG test, but they've also added immune complexes in there. So of the IgG tests, it is the most accurate.
0: What about, for sure. is there a difference between like, you know, drawing blood from your finger versus get, getting blood drawn? Like, mm-hmm. in terms of accuracy, how, does that affect anything? You know, I'm not as much I'm not enough
1: of a technician like a lab mm-hmm. tech to be able to answer that question. I know that for the MRT part of the reason why they could never do that is that the way they do the test mm-hmm. is they actually take they take four vials of blood when they do the draw and they split that blood amongst 170 different test tubes plus I believe 20 additionals for controls and in those test tubes are either the actual food or chemical that they're testing your blood against. So they could never logistically it just wouldn't even work mm-hmm. um it's different and i and I don't know I mean, I have that same question too about the accuracy when you've got a blood spot, just even from the fact that you have so s- such a smaller sample mm-hmm. to be working from it just seems like the margin for error would be greater but i'm I'm just not enough of a lab tech to be able to tell you specifically.
0: Yeah. I was just wondering if you i i've talked to a few functional medicine doctors about it, and they all have told me like. They've all said if the test for food sensitivities is just breaking your finger, don't trust it. Like, they all said, like, it needs to be a bigger sample. The blood needs to be centrifuged, like, so that's kind of the consensus I've gotten. Um, But another thing that, like, as I'm rolling through these different tests, another thing I hear is, you know, people say, I went to my doctor and they said they test me for food sensitivities and they gave me a a prick, like, a skin prick test.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So skin prick testing is like the old school way of testing for allergies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, now, super accurate for um, inhalant allergies. Really, really accurate. Extremely inaccurate. It's I want to say the accuracy is like, it's between 40 and 60% for our foods. And it will often give a lot of p- false positives. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of that one. And that one's looking specifically for allergies. So this is another important thing. It's, it's a bit technical, but I feel like your audience might be interested in this stuff. So with IgE, the inflammation response happens in tissue. So you can, you can test for IgE in the blood, and there's a really good correlation with elevated levels of IgE and inflammation. That's why if you do a blood test for IgE levels— for allergies this is the food allergies we're talking about here it's actually quite accurate because even though they're not looking for the end result the inflammation there's quite a close correlation you see elevated elevations in ige antibodies you see equal elevations in inflammation in the tissues it's not the same with the igg and the igm and iga you can see elevations in the blood levels without the without an equal response in an inflammation And the inflammation that occurs as a result of elevations in those IgG, IgM, IgA antibodies occurs in the blood, not in the tissues. Mm -hmm. So something like the MRT, that's not going to give you any information about an IgE allergy because the inflammation response would happen in in tissue, not in blood.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that's helpful for people to know. So um, if someone wants to get, like the MRT, how would they get that done?
1: So as a major caveat, I just have to say I wouldn't recommend going out and doing an MRT without working with somebody who can help you heal your gut. Mm -hmm. I believe you can go to Oxford Labs and just order it. Um, I I think that it's, you know, they'll send you a draw kit. You have to go out and find somebody to do the blood draw. But I have Mm -hmm. to say I really would advise against that Mm -hmm. because even if you do that and then take it to a practitioner there's kind of a good an order the the order of events should be that you do gut testing first and then or either you do this two at the same time or if you have to choose one to do before before the other for financial reasons I would do the gut testing first because that stuff doesn't shift easily. Um, and it certainly doesn't normally improve all on its own. It would be, <laughs> my life would be very different if it did. Um, the But the MRT food sensitivities, food sensitivities do shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you do food sensitivity testing and realize that, oh, I have a bunch of sensitivities, I need to heal my gut. Now you're just, you're sort of delaying the process. It's good to have that information and dive in to do the healing protocol mm-hmm. immediately.
0: Let's Let's dive into that side of things. So like So if you could only pick one, you would say, get the gut test.
1: If you could only get one, I'd say, wait till you can save up and do both. And I'm just, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to say. But honestly, as a clinician, like, I just can't in good conscience look at someone and say, do just this test Mm
0: -hmm. without
1: the other and feel like they're going to get results.
0: Mm. Interesting. So you feel that strongly about taking out those foods? 100%.
1: And anytime I've let anyone talk me into it, otherwise I've had bad results. So every time I, and I want to say, I was so falling into so when I first learned about these tests, um, I was doing some healing work. My daughter, my 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 oldest, when she was just like a year year and a half, she was having a lot of digestive issues, which was confounding to me because this kid was raised on like the most pristine diet. You know, I mean, she just, and any professional I talked to was like, I don't get it. Like you're doing everything right. So I did gut testing. But I was terrified to have her do a blood draw because she was so young. And so I didn't do it. And it's interesting because the woman who is now, you know, Anne Fisher Silva, she's now my business partner in another business where we teach um, we teach practitioners using how to use these tools. And I was I was talking with her. She was the one who I re- recommended I do this testing. And she was like, you got to do the MRT at the same time. And I was like, oh, I know, but I'm worried about the blood draw. And then, of course, the pediatrician that I talked to, she was like, oh, you're going to traumatize your child for life. You know, what are you doing? You know, and so I didn't. And I just based my protocol on what we found in the gut test, and I missed all the foods. And when I retested her, things had gotten worse, and she developed candida, which no one wants the news of candida, but let me tell you. A two-year-old does not want the news. I mean, that is hellacious, mostly for the parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was it was it just extended the work so far. So, I learned this from personal experience with myself or my daughter. And then when I um, when I've let clients, you know, when I've let their financial concerns or you know just sort of their their them be strong enough to sort of talk me out of what I know is clinically best, we've never gotten the same results. So at this point, I just don't do it.
0: Interesting. And
1: I've really hard line.
0: I have, I have a it's question. Just- yeah. Well, okay. When someone – this is kind of like circling back, but I just thought of it, and I don't yeah. want to forget it. Um, let's say someone gets their, their gut test, and they get the stool test, and then they also get the MRT done. They take out the foods through the protocol, um, and then they retest everything. If a food shows up again, if let's say the gut, the stool test comes back, it looks great. Um, mm-hmm. If they retest the food sensitivities again, and there's still food on there, what does that mean? Should they take
1: that so, out? Yeah, I mean, you could. So there's a lot of different things there. So, first of all, with retesting, I typically, I, I sometimes retest the MRT. I don't often um, because at that point, one of the analogies that I like to use is that you know, if you're if you're healing up a big wound on your arm, okay, like you've got this big gaping wound, and you're doing all the things—you got the healing bombs, you know—you're just, you're just doing the stuff to make it heal well. But every day, three times a day, you're walking along a brick wall and dragging that open wound along a brick wall. You're gonna—it's gonna slow down the healing progress, right, and probably get things extra inflamed. Mm-hmm. And it's an exaggerated analogy, but basically, that's what the food sensitivities are doing. Once you've got a nice, healthy arm, if you run it along a brick wall every once in a while, it's kind of no big deal, right? Mm -hmm. Like, your body can handle it. So um, once we have—I really focus on retesting with the stool to make sure that the gut has been healed, and I really focus my efforts on that. Once the gut has been healed, you can reintroduce these foods and— Unlike at that first time, you know, where you didn't know which foods were causing sensitivities and you got, you know, sort of this three day window in I, you know, I mean, you know, from personal experience, but I certainly see the most amazing foods come back. I mean, lettuce, who could be sensitive to lettuce, mm-hmm. a surprising number of people are sensitive to lettuce, you know? And so once you've identified those foods, you can go through a very systematic process to reintroduce them in a way that you can actually, now you've known what to eliminate to reintroduce you know my my rule of thumb is okay you've done the gut healing you're feeling great everything's good now we add one food at a time you eat that food on sort of day one nothing else changes nothing in your supplement protocol nothing in your diet nothing else and you watch the body for the next three days to see how it tolerates that food and so now you're giving that extra window of time for the delayed reaction Mm -hmm. and if and most of the time you're fine And then, you know, you can reintroduce that food, although I always recommend that once you've had a sensitivity to something that you only eat it a couple times a week, like, you know, you don't want to go back into consuming that every day if possible. So, um, so I typically do that. But if you do, you know, kind of answering around your question, but when you if you do do a food sensitivity test, again, often what we'll find is most things have come right down, you might still have a few little lingering things, normally, the levels of things have decreased significantly. You have a couple choices. I mean, you can keep them out of the diet for another three months um, and, you know, continue with making sure you're keeping that gut healed and strong and the microbiome nice and robust. Um, You know, or you could you can just try them and, and see how the body responds, you know? Okay. So, um, yeah, but it's, you know, and because of the financial piece, that's one of the reasons why I don't often do a second food sensitivity test. Cause I figure if we can do it without testing, I will just to save the money, especially since I've insisted on the two tests up front. And I normally insist on a retest for the gut as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So let's talk more about the gut tests. Um, what, what, gut test do you like to use with clients?
1: Yeah, which has changed completely. So the test that I now use almost exclusively is the GI map. And this is a really cool test. So what we used to be limited to, this is a fairly new test. It's been on the market for, I want to say a couple of years. Um, I've been using it almost exclusively for at least a year and a half now. And so the thing with, um, with the GI map that is different from historic. So we used to take you know, basically, you you poop, you gather your poop mm-hmm. sometimes over the course of three days, and then they would take that. You know, it's a small sample of your poop, and then they would take that. I take a little bit of that and smear it on a slide, and then they would culture it so they would see what grows. And there's so many, you know, you'd also put when you when you sent it to the lab, it would go in this reagent fluid that had a bunch of sugars in it, which designed to basically keep feeding anything if it's in there. So if you had a fungal overgrowth or anything, if there's any yeast in there, they'll actually eat the sugar, any bacteria, same kind of thing. So. A lot of room for error. And these tests missed a lot of things. If you got a positive, especially if, you know, they looked under the microscope and they saw a parasite, like that's a very confirmed positive. But you got Mm. a lot of false negatives. The one that we use now, the GI map, uses an entirely different technology where they're actually looking for the genetic evidence of things that are not you. And it's way more sensitive. They're not trying to keep anything alive because, of course, you know, DNA, like genetic material doesn't go away. You know, it's not they're not looking for something to be, quote unquote, viable as in still living. They're just looking for that genetic evidence. And they use this technology where they, you know, they basically amplify it so they can just it's, it's like putting putting the stool under this gigantic magnifying glass, you know, to the you know nth degree so that they can detect this um, genetic material. And it's just far, far, far more sensitive. And for, you know, for the client who's taking the sample, it's much easier because it's one sample um, on one day, you don't have to do it three times, which is for some people who don't have regular bowel movements. When you ask them to take a sample a day for three days, that can cause a whole world of stress.
0: Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, Have you ever had issues with the GI map in terms of picking up Candida? Because that's something I've heard from a lot of practitioners. Yeah, I hear that too. I see it all the time. So no. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's say though, someone is working with a doctor and they don't use a GI map. Mm -hmm. Um, they don't have access to it. Like, Do you have, like, a hierarchy of, like, other tests that might be offered that you think are, like, okay, if you don't have access to the GI map, then this would be my second choice? Right.
1: I mean, what I would say is try to find a practitioner who does work with it. And it's not just medical doctors who work. I mean, I work with them. I, I order it through. There's there's some direct access testing services that will give, you know, the whole purpose of them is to give, you know, the public more direct control over their health. Mm-hmm. So, um, So that's the way that I would say you could get to it. I mean, I really would recommend with this kind of stuff, I wouldn't, I would highly recommend working with a practitioner. Um, who knows how to work with these tests, because it's quite an art to be Mm -hmm. able to interpret them properly um, and then to develop a protocol. And I know I'll tell you, you there's a really great resource to find a practitioner. So um, if people want to go to restorativewellnesssolutions.com, we have a find a practitioner tab, which we just we just came out with our new site. So a lot easier to navigate, a lot easier to find what you're looking for. But we have practitioners all over the country and these people are really well trained on working ex- specifically with lots of things. But specifically with the MRT and the GI map and that particular combination together, um, these practitioners are, are I mean, I've, I've personally trained them mm-hmm. um, along with my business partner. And so they really you know, you can find somebody um you know, we've we've got we've got people all over the country, actually all over the world at this point. We have some in Asia and Australia and Canada and New Zealand as well. So um so yeah, so you should be able to um to find some support there. And that's the that's the route I would recommend because this is this stuff is gets a lot more complicated than just pulling some foods out of your diet. Mm -hmm. And if you're gonna spend the money on the test, you want the results. Yeah. It ends up being, you know, it'll be in the neighborhood of, you know, seven hundred dollars ish to do these two tests together. And so
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that because that's what I was going to ask. You know, people are going to listen to this and think, well, how do I find somebody who does these tests? Because I think that's kind of the hardest thing for people. Um, yes. So they can just go to that website, and I'll put that yeah. in the show notes too. But what about if people are listening to this thinking, well, I've been working with an FMD, and they gave me. I just did, like, a Genova test and a Cyrex yeah. test, so should I just throw those results out the window and try and find someone who, did the G- who does the JMAP mm-hmm. in MRT, or, like, do you still go yeah. off of those? Like, what would you say to that person?
1: Yeah, well, I, here's my thing, is if you're working with somebody already, you've done a bunch of testing, you've spent the money, you've invested, like, give let let that protocol do its work. Mm-hmm. Like, go the course, you know? What I'm sharing today with you is my way. You know, mm-hmm. it's not the only way. Um, it's definitely what I've seen work the best in my practice, but I'm one practitioner, you know. So um, so I would say, you know, um, if you're working with somebody already, you've done the testing, you're mid protocol, like stick it out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, give it. It takes protocols. You know, most people will say three to six months. Give it the time. You know, it's one of the most frustrating things I'll tell you as a practitioner is if you're starting something and somebody like picks up and goes to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, they're like, oh, what you said didn't work. And you're like, but you, you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you tried all these other things or you didn't give it enough time, you know, and a good practitioner. I mean, there's no body. There's no human beings. Our bodies are fundamentally mysterious still. You know, there's so much more that we don't know than what we do know. But a good practitioner is going to work with you to adjust course. Mm -hmm. So if you get on somebody's protocol and like, for example, symptoms get worse instead of getting better, like I would say, don't just scrap it and think, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. Like reach out to them and talk to them about it because a good practitioner will work with you. And sometimes you're having an adverse response. Sometimes you just went too quickly. Sometimes you just need to adjust and change course. Everybody is different. And a good practitioner will really tuck in with you and help you figure it out. But you got to give them the chance to do that. So I think that's a really, really important piece of information because it can be very tempting to dive in have high expectations if you don't get those results immediately feel like this isn't working and jump to the next when really it's just that things needed to be tweaked and you needed to give it more time
0: yeah I'm really happy you said that because I see that a lot with practitioner hopping like even people will Uh say you know I was with this person for one or two months and I'm like it's still not enough time in my opinion Um, (laughs) like it takes longer than that but I think that's also another misconception I think I'm seeing a lot of people who are like the the standard protocol length, which is why I was interested to hear you say like three to six months, usually like, Mm -hmm. I I think more so with functional medicine doctors, they tend to do protocols that are like eight weeks. Um, And I don't know, I just feel like it's just not giving giving the body enough time to heal in general.
1: Uh, I would agree. I like to give it a little bit more space because I've definitely had clients where it's like those first couple months, things just seem to be really stubborn and they're not moving, but then everything just sort of clicks in in that third month and we get much more resolution. There's also, you know, there's no hard and fast rules here, but a really good general guideline is that for every year you've been sick, assume at least a month of healing. So you'll also have somebody comes and they're like, I've been sick for like 12 years And, you know, within two months, they're not feeling perfect. It's like, well, it took you some time to get here. It's going to take some time to unravel. And working naturally, you know, using food, supplements, lifestyle changes, it's really powerful and it's really different from working with medications where it's like, Those medications are designed to suppress a response or engender another response, and it's this very sort of immediate, like you take the pill, you feel this way. It doesn't normally, you know, some things take a little time to build up, but mostly it's a fairly immediate response, and that's a mindset that you have to shift if you're going to do the true healing work you Mm -hmm. know and that can be challenging for some people especially if they've been in the allopathic world for a long time they sort of expect that immediacy and of course we're a culture of immediacy right instant gratification we want it to work we want it to work yesterday
0: yeah very true i think also just like a misunderstanding of i guess i think people aren't really understanding where the like let's take food sensitivities where is that coming from like why do you have a food sensitivity like that it's related to your gut health if you have Leaky gut, right? And you have to heal that gut and what goes into that. And when people aren't thinking like what the root cause is, they're just yeah. thinking like, oh, I should take some pills and it goes away, rather than thinking of like the mechanism behind actually healing up the gut.
1: Yeah. It's a totally different approach.
0: Yeah. It's, it takes time, but let me tell you,
1: it's worth it because once you're healed, like, you know, ideally you're done, right? Like it's not something that you have to, I mean, yes, life happens and we do live in a world where there's a lot of sort of assaults physically and emotionally stress, you know, all these things of course play a really big role to it. Um, But you're just, your body is so much better equipped um, to, to handle those things when you've done the healing work and not having to rely on just these long lists of medications. I mean, that, I mean, that is one of the biggest lessons I saw with my mom. I mean, it was just, she had some pretty severe core issues, but ultimately what killed her was side effects of the medications,
0: Mm. you know?
1: And it was, you know, medication and then the medication to manage the side effects and then the medication to manage the concoction of this. I mean, it was just, I mean, her list of meds was like a page long. It was incredible. And it was just this slow, awful process of degradation. And, you know, there's certain things that, you know, Western medicine is brilliant and I would never, I mean, there's certain things, I mean, it's absolutely life saving and there's, I'm never going to, you know, downplay it at all. It has an absolutely critically important role. There's just certain things that, you know, these sort of chronic diseases um, where, you know, if you have an immune system that is lost the ability to differentiate between friend and foe, right? It's lost the ability to say, oh, you're a pathogen, I'm going to attack you or you're a virus or a bacteria, but oh, you're thyroid tissue or joint tissue or nerve tissue, you know, and I'm not going to attack you. When the immune system has lost that ability to make that distinction, just shutting down the immune system, yeah, you, you can feel better because you're not attacking yourself. But then, you know, I watched my mom once, she got a hangnail. That hangnail, turned into an infection that her up her arm that had her hospitalized for months with them pumping antibiotics from a freaking hangnail, oh my right? God. And that's because she had not a shred of an immune system because it was so suppressed to manage her different autoimmune diseases. So it's, you know, it's just, you know, and, and so my question now is like, well, why is that immune system making poor decisions like that? You know, what is fatiguing it? What is confusing it? What's getting in that's looking like tissue, like self-tissue, so that this brilliant capacity our immune systems have to memorize and and to know, oh, you're a foreign invader, that I need to remember you so that when I see you again, I'm going to attack. That's a brilliant and magnificent facility that our immune systems have until it's our thyroid tissue that it remembers, Mm -hmm. right? So- so it's you know re it's removing the assaults on the the things that are tiring out that immune system, the things that are confusing it, digging in, and it's harder work for sure, but oh my gosh, it really works it really works
0: a lot of the first people to think about, I think yeah, yeah. <laughs> gotta get to the root cause um yeah. well. I actually have one last question just to wrap things up, an easy one. But when people are, I mean, back to the food sensitivity issue, people are reintroducing foods. Yeah. How do you recommend they reintroduce and what symptoms did they look for?
1: Okay, so you want to go nice and slowly. You want to start with one food at a time. And by one food, like let's say that you are reintroducing, you know, you're reintroducing uh, broccoli. Mm-hmm. So I want you to eat just the broccoli. Like don't introduce broccoli along with five other vegetables you haven't been eating as well. Like you want to keep everything else the same as, as you have been doing. So no changes in diet at the same time and no, um, no changes in your supplement routine, or if you take medications, no changes in your meds. So you just want to sort of minimize the variables. Life is normal, except that you're going to take that food that you've been avoiding and you're going to eat it multiple times in one day. And then, you're going to not eat it again and you're going to not do anything else differently. So you're going to go back to exactly how you were doing it before you ate that broccoli all day long. In the next three days, you're going to watch for symptoms. And what kind of symptoms could it be? Typically, it's going to be a recurrence of something that's gone away. So if you used to have, you know, a rash or a headache or a sinus infection or, or you would get like, uh, you know, really bloated or, you know, it can manifest in lots of different ways Usually, it's the recurrence of something that is that has gone away, and it comes back loud and strong. Sometimes it's something different. Um, and any one of those that I just said, it can be something that's very sort of typically allergy-ish. So something where, you you know, all of a sudden runny eyes, runny nose, you know, uh, itchy skin, sort of that classic type of histamine response. It can be joint pain. It can be headaches. It can be foggy brain. It can be digestive symptoms. So, you know, it's kind of a long list. Usually it's what has gone away and it comes back. Now, here's the thing. Normally it's not subtle. It's not like, Ooh, I had just a little headache beside my left eye. You know, normally it's like, you know, any, what I see normally is people, you know, if they're kind of unsure, then it's probably no (laughs) kind of like in relationships. If you're going, I don't know, it's probably a no. (laughs) Um, But then if it's like loud and strong and like, you know, oh my gosh, that was undeniable. I ate this and I haven't had, you know, I haven't had this like intense gas that had me lying down after meals for the last, you know, three months and now I had it. Yeah, it's pretty much.
0: I'll okay, okay. Yeah. good to know. Thank you. That was kind of my so last. Welcome. Yeah, I mean, I could talk to you for a million years. You have so many <laughs> things to share, but thank you for clearing all that up. I know there's just been yeah. so much confusion about food sensitivity tests, and like this is, you know, this in and out, um, and teach people how to interpret these tests. So I really appreciate it. I'm sure everyone listening does as well. Can you tell everyone? Where they can contact you, find more from you. Yeah, for sure. So I've, I've
1: kind of taken a vacation indefinitely from social media because it's just it's just too many other things going on. I was finding it too distracting. So the best place to find me is on my website, mm-hmm. which is eatnakednow.com. And there's tons of great resources. We just uh, we just did an inventory. We have over 400 articles there. Um, I wrote a three-part series on food sensitivity testing where I explain everything you know, what I just talked with you guys about, I went through it kind of piece by piece, explaining the different mechanisms, explaining the different types of testing, explaining why you always need to do it with gut healing at the same time. So that's a really good resource. If you just do a search for food sensitivities on um, at eatnakednow.com, then you'll find lots of stuff there. But I did a thing on uh, lectins when I read the plant paradox and played around with that. So I've talked about that. I mean, you know, the recovering vegetarian thing, there's a lot of different resources there. So that's the best place. And there's a contact form there if you want to inquire uh, you know about anything and just email us info at eat nakednow.com if you have questions or anything like that where um, we do our very best to respond with I'm gonna say give us a few business days because we get a lot of incoming and um, you know I'm pretty busy but that's but happy to um, and, and that remember that resource restorative wellness solutions.com uh, find a practitioner for those of you who are looking for a practitioner who works with these tools you know most functional medical um, practitioners whether it be they doctors nutritionists and and what else, most don't work with the tools the way that I was explaining today. So it's actually quite a specific way of working with them. Part of the reason why um, my business partner and I have restorative wellness solutions training practitioners is so we can have more people doing it and mm-hmm. using these tools in this way because we've just had really kind of unbelievably outstanding results with these kinds of things. I mean, it, it's, it's remarkable what will shift when you do this gut healing. And of course, we work with other types of testing as well from hormone testing, blood work, all of that kind of stuff. But this is, you know, this this healing, this gut healing um, that we're talking about today is, it's, you know. It's the mothership, right? You know, you are walking food. And if you can't digest it or there's some kind of dysfunctioning happening there, that's going to affect every cell in your body. So it's the starting point.
0: Very true. All right. And I will put all of that information in the show notes so everyone has it. So thank you again. This was amazing. So welcome. This was so fun to chat at length about all of this. Thank you so much to Margaret for coming on the show and sharing all of her wonderful information. I am sure that you guys got a lot out of that. Maybe you took some notes. Good for you. You can find more from her at eatnakednow.com She may or may not be back from her Instagram hiatus by the time this airs, but her Instagram handle is eatnakednow, so you can connect with her on there. If you enjoy the show, make sure you share it with family, friends, everyone. I always love when you share it on social media. And make sure you join our Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe, to connect with other listeners. As always, if you have not already, I would so appreciate it if you left a rating and a review on iTunes. It really, really helps me out. And if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe so you never miss a new episode. I release episodes every Monday and Thursday, and when you subscribe, it's totally free to you, but that just makes sure that it pops up in your little app so you don't miss out on the new content. You can always find more from me at ChristinaRiceWellness.com or on Instagram at ChristinaRiceWellness. I always love connecting with you guys on there. That's it for this episode. I hope you have an incredible day, and I will talk to you again next time. Bye.